Greetings, fellow seekers of wisdom and wonder. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Joseph Campbell. Many of you know me as that hero's journey guy, but of course there's more to me and more to my work than just that. To that end, we've invited a distinguished guest to illuminate the pathways of my artistic and literary career. John Booker, the executive director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, will unravel and explicate the threads of my work. So with no further ado, let us embark on this expedition together. Let the rhythm of the waves and the echoes of time guide us as we uncover the hidden treasures of the human spirit. For within each tale, within every whisper, lies a reflection of the infinite, a mirror that reflects the divine dance of creation itself. And now, my friends, allow me to step aside, uh, for the stories themselves are ready to take center stage. John Booker, thank you so much for agreeing to join us today on Voices of Esalen for a conversation. The pleasure is truly mine, Sam. I've been a longtime listener of the podcast and just a big fan of Esalen in general, but also uh, really appreciated the work that this podcast has brought out into the world and uh, the role that you've specifically played in that. So it's, it's a real honor to be with you. Oh, man. Thank you, John. Today, your task is going to be, I wouldn't say monumental, but the task before you is significant in that I'm going to be relying on you to sort of explicate Joseph Campbell's work in a way I can understand it. Because (laughs) Campbell's a very important figure at Esalen in Esalen history and Esalen intellectual history. And at the same time, I have to confess when I have um, attempted to interrogate uh, his work for myself, for my own pleasure, for the edification of the listeners of this podcast, I don't have a great grasp on it. I don't, I don't have that firm handhold on it. So that's good. That's what I'm presenting to you. I am, I'm up for the challenge. And, you know, can I just say, Sam, you're, you're not alone in that. There are far many more people that have bought a Joseph Campbell book (laughs) or have listened to his lecture (laughs) than have really processed what he had to share and offer in the world. And so often, our culture tries to bring things down to, you know, a soundbite. And a lot of Joseph Campbell's work is difficult to bring down to a soundbite. Mm-hmm. And the few things that were really took off as soundbites. Follow your bliss, for example. You know, this this idea that Campbell had, you know, there, there were probably a million bumper stickers out in the world that said, follow your bliss, because it was something he said that people could bring down to a soundbite. But the way Campbell's mind worked, it didn't easily lend itself always to a simple three-point PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) You really have to dig into it. But as someone who has spent a lot of his own life digging into that material, I can tell you there is such richness Mm. as you find your way down into Campbell's work. Well, that's great. I want to presence the fact that I have had an assistant. In fact, I I got Joseph Campbell. What? Using a 1967 lecture that Campbell gave at Esalen called Psyche and Symbol, I was able to create a clone of Campbell's voice. So the way that I've structured this interview is for Campbell to do more, more of the questioning than myself, if that's okay with you. This is a big moment for me because... Although I am the executive director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, I never got to meet Campbell in person. So this is going to be historic in that it is my first conversation with Joseph Campbell. 
Okay, well, let's see what he's got to say. John, a lot of people come to my work through a catchphrase, which is follow your bliss. And it's not that I didn't mean it when I said it, but I think people have misinterpreted the sentiment behind the statement. I want you to let people know once and for all what I really meant when I said follow your bliss. <laughs> wow, the, the pressure of this moment, asking uh, Joseph Campbell, asking you to uh, clarify follow your bliss. I, I, I think uh, Joe's spot on here. This is, I think, one of the most misunderstood ideas that Joseph Campbell shared. And it, it sort of was a uh, joke later that, uh, that Campbell said, I should have said, follow your blisters, because the idea of following your bliss, when it is turned into a bumper sticker, it turns into this idea that we should just go with whatever feels good and uh, go with the flow and whatever you're kind of interested in, just go do that and shuck all responsibility. No, he was actually stating something that was a, it was a dangerous idea. Mm. The idea of following your bliss is actually very dangerous. It's wonderful. It will lead to a life that gives you experiences like no other, but it is not to be taken lightly because this idea of following your bliss is really finding that thing in life that animates you, that thing that rises passion up inside of you, that thing that you just cannot turn loose of because it has a grip on you and the relationship that you have with it seems to transcend this world. And when we find that thing that gives us purpose, that gives us meaning, that gives us the ability to connect with other people, yes, it will bring us joy. But it may also bring us some of the deepest, most challenging, difficult experiences of our life. Mm. There is a great burden to following your bliss. And so many people overlook that burden. Mm. Those of us who have taken on that responsibility to follow the thing in the world that we believe is going to make this world a better place, but also allow us to live a life most fully, understand that it's not going to just all be rainbows and sunny days. Anything that is going to have meaning in this world is going to take sacrifice. And the price of following your bliss may be everything. It may cost you everything in order to do that. In a sense, when you look at whether it's figures uh, you know, from mythology or figures even from history that follow their bliss and what they're supposed to be doing in the world, it doesn't always end well, right? <laughs> it often ends uh, with a grand tragic death. Mm. But I think that is also this mirroring of the death of the ego, right? Mm. Because what we are doing when we're following our own bliss is we're getting out of our own way. Mm. We are becoming a more profound version of ourselves. We're becoming our true self. And in doing that, we are following something that is mysterious mm. and yet it seems as real as everything we can see and touch in this moment. Mm. A lot of people will ask me, Sam, 
John, you you say you're a mythologist. Joseph Campbell is a mythologist. What is a mythologist? And I always tell people, we are they that study the stories around the mystery. The mystery of what it means to be on this planet, the meaning of what it is to interact with each other and what comes of that, and the mystery of what it is to be human. We're here to study the stories around that because, as Campbell suggested, some things are so important we can only talk about them through metaphor. We can only tell stories about them. Yes. Yeah. I get that. I like that. Okay, good. Okay, that leads me to the next Joe question. Here we go. Thank you, Sam. You're such a gracious host. <laughs> I'm realizing I haven't queried our friend John about one of the central concepts of my work, which is myth. I was quite focused on universal themes, shared stories, and aspects of human narratives that crossed cultures. John, why was mythology so damn interesting to me? <laughs> well, Joe, I'm so glad that you asked. Um, I, I have, uh, you know, read all of Campbell's books and a lot of material that was was never published by uh, Campbell. And there is a curiosity that is the through line that runs deep through his work. And I believe his curiosity around myth really came back to a, a statement that he made. He said that he did not believe that most people were looking for the meaning of life as much as they were the rapturous experience of being alive. Uh I think in many ways that encapsulates his fascination with myth because myth gets at this idea of what it means to truly live a life what it means to have this rapturous experience of being alive. That word rapturous is interesting because it suggests that we're transcending the here and now, the physical, that there's something that connects us to something larger than ourselves. And so I believe that idea that he put forth is exactly what fascinated him about myth. When he was a boy, his parents took him to a Wild West show, which was like a a version of the circus that involved uh, indigenous people and and cowboys and all of this narrative, you know, that was a big part of the culture at the time. And he fell in love with the stories and the rituals and the culture of indigenous Americans. And as he began to explore that, he started to understand that there was something going on from culture to culture that seemed to connect human beings that he couldn't fully understand. This, you know, led him to to Carl Jung and the work of the uh, the work around the collective unconscious. It also led him to to people that had profound impact on him early in life, people like Krishnamurti, you know, whose whose work really landed with Campbell. And Campbell became deeply fascinated with Eastern myth and Eastern ritual. And, you know, his trips to Asia uh, were, were some of the most profound experiences in his life. But all of that 
whether it be the experiences he had with indigenous Americans, whether it be the experiences he had with Krishnamurti, whether it it be the experiences he had in Asia, these were all coming back to this experience that he was so fascinated by, and that's the experience of being alive. What does it mean to really live? You mentioned this interest in Eastern thought, and that really places Campbell in a, in a time and a, and a place for me, because I think about some of the early teachers at Esalen who are some of the notables, like Alan Watts. And a lot of what Alan Watts was doing was translating Eastern thought for some of the Western intellectuals and Western counterculturalists, who among them the beat writers and such, who found this new knowledge to be fascinating. How in particular did Campbell fit in with this countercultural intellectual element where Eastern doctrines could be enormously interesting? He, he almost is the most unlikely collaborator that you can imagine with these. If you see photos of Campbell at the time, you know, he's wearing a, a tie and a jacket and the way he does his hair, like he is the furthest thing you can imagine from a countercultural figure. And yet the ideas he's fascinated by, that is the audience that is also fascinated by those ideas, you know, so he, I think, came to an acceptance of it, especially uh, towards the end of his life when he uh, recognized that there was uh, real synergy with the guys in The Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart and Jerry Garcia and these guys that really welcomed him into conversation. And he ended up attending a show with The Grateful Dead uh, uh, and, and he compared it to a Dionysian ritual. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he saw that there were mythic things happening with these other movements, countercultural movements that he recognized were incredibly mythic. It didn't mean, though, he felt that he needed to participate in those particular things. He could have an appreciation for them. He could understand them on an intellectual level. You know, George Lucas is, of course, closely associated with Campbell, and Campbell has this big influence, you know, on the creation of Star Wars. But Campbell was not a big moviegoer. He was not someone who was that interested in, in the movies. He was interested to see what Lucas had done with his work, but he was not a moviegoer that, you know, was really interested in seeing how these things played out in the the arts. He was very interested in the literature of the early part of the century he was born in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, James Joyce and Thomas Mann and these types of thinkers. But where his interest, I believe, in Eastern myth and in Eastern thinking really begin to gel is not only from a mythological place, but when you really start thinking about consciousness, when you start thinking about what all this means, you're eventually going to get into ideas that lead you out of binary systems, and you're going to eventually get to non-dualism. And when you start looking at the ways that you can explore non-dualism through many of these Eastern traditions, they are some of the only traditions that have really given concrete language to an approach to understanding some of, of these very difficult to comprehend ideas. So I think Campbell became more and more interested in these Eastern traditions, these Eastern texts that allowed the opportunity to go deeper into human psyche, into consciousness, into non-dualism, because that is really where his thinking was going as he aged and as he went further into his journey into what myth really is all about. 
John, this might be a, a too basic a question, but I'm curious why Campbell was so interested in the idea that myths and stories could be similar across cultures. Why was that particularly fascinating to him to see the similarities in different parts of the world and different cultures? This is not just a Campbell thing. I think this is something that human beings actually, we do because it's part of our own nervous system. And that is our brains love to identify patterns. Our brains love to identify patterns. And when we can see something that we recognize, something lights up inside of our brain that causes us to feel like we're having a deeper understanding of a larger system. Mm. So in this effort to understand humanity, I think Joseph Campbell he came across these patterns that he saw and that he recognized appearing in cultures that had never met each other. And he was fascinated by that, as any of us, I think, would be. One of the big mistakes people make about Campbell, however, is thinking that that was really the core fascination of his work, was finding the similarities in other cultures. He writes this one book about the similarities in cultures in 1949 called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And then he spends the next uh, several decades writing books about how different all the cultures are. I think that's something he doesn't get a lot of credit for, is that exploration of how different the rituals, the myths, the stories are. And we want it to be a binary. We want it to be one way or the other. We want it to say, oh, there's this similarity in myths and stories and culture, or there's not. And Anything in life that's worth understanding is worth understanding it in a complex, layered, nuanced way that we could hold with both hands and say, there are these seeming similarities among cultures and the stories they tell Mm. and the myths that they have. And on this other hand, we can also hold the fact that there are grand differences between these cultures, these rituals, these myths, and these stories, and they should be examined and appreciated individually and collectively. Can't we do both? Mm -hmm. That's great. Back to Joe. John, I have to tell you, I'm really enjoying this interview so far. I can see why they made you executive director of my foundation. You have a way with words. I think you really get me. (laughs) So here's another piece of my work that I'd like you to talk about. It's the hero's journey. I'd like you to tell our listeners the origin of this concept and then how it morphed into something that is widely discussed in pop culture. Wow, those those words, uh, hearing Campbell say those words really touched my emotions. That's uh, That means a lot. Isn't that um, weird? I mean, I know that you all have, have also played around with cloning a voice, and, yeah. and there's this idea, I, damn, I forget the name of it, but it's something that even if you know something is not actually real, you can experience it almost against your will emotionally as real yeah it's that uncanny valley between what we uh, know to 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 be non-human and what something inside of us still can be uh, affected by joseph campbell was deeply fascinated by psychology and that is because you know human psychology is getting at so many of these same questions and ideas that mythology gets at 
And it's certainly no secret that Campbell was very taken with Carl Jung, very fascinated by Jung's work. And I think we see certain aspects of Jung's work within the monomyth or what Campbell originally called the hero's adventure. Mm. It's become known as the hero's journey. And later, Campbell sort of succumbed to people calling it that. And he started calling it that after others did. But originally, he called it the hero's adventure. And the hero's adventure, in many ways, when we look at it from a psychological perspective, it is very similar to the way that human beings solve problems. When we look at the different steps of the hero's journey or the hero's adventure, we can see certain archetypal motifs that human beings tend to resonate with on a level that goes back to, again, our nervous systems. One story theorist put it like this, that when we encounter these motifs within the hero's journey, it feels like we're remembering something we've forgotten as opposed to seeing something we've never seen before. Yes. And, and I think that's true, right? When you see this in a movie or you, you encounter it, it feels more like we're experiencing something that, that we've long forgotten about as opposed to putting together the puzzle for the first time. Human beings are interested in solving problems, and we're also interested in finding buried treasure, finding the boon, finding the gold, achieving the goal that we've had. Now, I think one thing that's interesting when we look at what Campbell wrote about this in 1949, Campbell was actually trying to be descriptive about what he identified not prescriptive to say, so go out and live your hero's journey. Now, it, later in life, he, I think he became encouraged to see that people were assisted and helped by finding out about this monomyth and this model. And as any of us would, when we see something that we've identified that helps other people, he, he was encouraged by that. He liked that. But it wasn't like he developed this idea saying, this is the way a human being should lead a life. He saw this in the literature, in the myths, in the, the history of the human experience. And, and he pointed to what he saw happening. Now, it really was much later, uh, after uh, Campbell uh, had already left the picture, that pop culture really started to embrace this. Because while Lucas embraced it with Star Wars, a man who is actually a dear friend of mine named Chris Vogler wrote a book called The Writer's Journey. And Chris was working in Hollywood and Chris wrote a memo that went viral in Hollywood before anything went viral. And it was basically saying this seems to be a pattern that works in the stories that are successful and resonate with people. And so Hollywood took this idea and really ran with it. And we started seeing tons and tons of film and television shows that were based around this particular form. Now, I also feel like it's important to say Campbell was a scholar. He was an academic in many ways. And as a scholar, he took other people's work and he built on those foundations. He was not the first person to come up with this idea of a heroic journey. 
He was not the first person to identify these three stages that seem to be a part of the heroic journey. And he would be the first to say that. He identifies a lot of these thinkers, you know, in his book. But he also, I think, would have expected us to take his ideas and go forward with those ideas. I love one of my great mentors and the person who was the chair of my dissertation is Maureen Murdoch. And Maureen wrote The Heroine's Journey. And so we see how a journey plays out with a heroine. There's been a number of other writers and thinkers who have taken that work forward. I personally have been working on taking Campbell's work into a new iteration that I'm calling the collective heroic journey. What does it mean for a collective group of people to go on a journey together and to find meaning through through journeying something together? And I think we're seeing a lot of interest in this collective heroic journey in culture, even in pop culture, movies like The Avengers, where all of these different heroes come together and they go on this journey together. The TV show Stranger Things, we're seeing this group of kids that come together and they go on this journey together. I could go on and on, but this is a model I'm writing about right now where I'm trying to take Campbell's work and and bring that into context for this moment in time. Mm. And I think that's what Campbell would have wanted. I think that is what we can best do is look back at the ideas that have been brought to us by these wonderful, amazing thinkers, by the Joseph Campbells, the Abraham Maslows, the Alan Watts, and bring those into cultural context with what we have right now so that people today can benefit from the way that those ideas have moved forward and transcended. Just in thinking about Star Wars, do you feel like the application of Campbell's hero's journey made it in some ways the quintessential hero's journey screenplay, or was it more so just that it's an enormously popular film? Certainly, Lucas was a big Campbell fan. He had read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He used that to work out his story in Star Wars. But if you look at the actual beats of the film, it doesn't follow exactly, especially the order of things that happen in the hero's journey. We have the meeting with the goddess occur far before it should, actually, in the hero's journey. When Obi-Wan Kenobi dies in Star Wars Episode Four. that is not the place that that would normally happen necessarily in a monomyth structure. So I think we look to Star Wars to shoulder a lot more of the hero's journey than it may actually be capable of doing. Star Wars managed to capture something of the mythic that was beyond formula, and it captured a mythic form. Hmm. So we, we tend to confuse form and formula. Star Wars somehow was able to capture that mythic form hmm. that transcended the, the beats of the formula. And it's that mythic form. I believe, that has caused it to remain so resonant within the culture, even to this day. You know, when I think about Star Wars, I think about almost a Freudian interpretation of of some of it, the whole Oedipal conflict between Luke and Darth Vader. Earlier, you mentioned the obvious Jungian influences on Campbell. Why would you say Jung was so important to Campbell? 
beyond the collective unconscious, I think the other piece that you just can't underestimate is the idea of uh, archetypes that Jung is bringing this idea of different archetypes of the child, the dark father, and these, these different ideas that, in a sense, connect as much to storytelling yeah. as they do uh, to, to anything else. And so I think Campbell also, aside from this idea of the collective unconscious, which certainly informs the, the idea of the monomyth and the hero with a thousand faces, I think he also becomes really fascinated by Jung's work around the archetypes and what those might mean for the narratives within mythology, because he's heavily influenced by this idea of certain archetypes having a presence in certain mythological narratives and rituals for that matter. So, John, why do archetypes matter? What is so central and so kind of fascinating about the concept of an archetype? It's a great question, Sam, because First of all, people often have a lot of trouble differentiating a stereotype from an archetype. Yeah. And the best way that I could explain that to someone is where a stereotype narrows who someone is, an archetype opens up okay. who someone is. So if we were going to, you know, say someone is stereotypically this or stereotypically that, it really narrows who that person really is. It, it, it's reductive of their humanity, where an archetype opens up who that person is and expands their humanity in many ways. So I'll give you an example. Like if we take the archetype of the wise old sage or the mentor, every person in their life has had someone come along that stepped into that role. For some people, it's a grandparent. For some, it's, a, it's an uncle. For some, it was the old lady that lived down the street. For some, it was a woman in their church or their synagogue or their mosque. For others, it was a teacher in high school. And yet for others, it was their mother's best friend. How is it that we all could have this same universal experience through all of these different characters or people who could be so different, and yet the energy between us and that mentor figure, that wise character in our lives, it's such a similar experience, no matter how different the people are. Well, that's why archetypes are important, because we can recognize that there's some sort of motif, there's some sort of pattern, there's some sort of energy there that seems to be shared across family lines, across cultural lines, across racial lines, across international borders. There's something there. And that was fascinating to Joseph Campbell. It was fascinating, obviously, to Carl Jung. But I think it's fascinating to you and I as well. Why? Because, Sam, you and I may have nothing in common. And yet, if we're both able to identify that person who was able to speak wisdom mm -hmm. into our life, into our journey, suddenly we've found a commonality between the two of us. That's powerful. Yeah. That's something that brings us together. Yeah. No, I think this is coming into focus for me. I'm starting to get it a little bit. Let's see what, what else Joe got to say. Okay. You know, apart from you two gentlemen who are having such a lovely conversation about all things Joseph Campbell, 
I owe an enormous debt to one man who brought my work to a wide audience. Of course, I'm talking about Bill Moyers. John, would you do me the honor of speaking about the Bill Moyers-Joseph Campbell connection? Absolutely. Uh, Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell had a set of conversations that were captured and called The Power of Myth. Hmm. And Interestingly enough, these were released shortly after Joseph Campbell died. Joseph Campbell never got to see the impact that these conversations would have. One of the things that I think we can really appreciate about Bill Moyers in conversation with Joseph Campbell is Bill Moyers had this unique ability to ask a question that would draw out more than an answer from someone, but actually opened up that person's heart and soul to begin flowing. That is a rare gift. Bill Moyers, he, he not only produced and created this programming that you know brought Campbell to such a wide audience, but he also got in there and did the hard work of going one-on-one -on -one with Campbell to bring these ideas out. And that is no small feat. That is amazing. And Bill Moyers is still alive today. He's still with us. And he's continued to be a, a gift to uh, the culture of all of us alive in the world today. So um, I personally am very thankful for the work that Bill Moyers did to bring Joseph Campbell to such a wide audience. And when people are interested in watching the, these videos, how do, how, where do you direct them? You can go and watch a lot of those videos for free on YouTube. Sometimes the entire collection will come up through Amazon or through Netflix or one of the many streaming services, but uh, you can go and watch most of that material for free out on YouTube, which I highly encourage you to do. Also, uh, we at the Joseph Campbell Foundation will take snippets of that conversation between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. We're constantly putting out those snippets and clips mm. of that conversation and giving those a title that people can maybe grab if they just have a few minutes and they, they don't have several hours to go deep into the power of myth. Maybe you want to hear Campbell just talk about Kundalini. As I mentioned earlier, Campbell can be a hard person to pull sound bites from, but we've done our best to to pull two, three, four minute clips, you know, that allow you to get your head around an idea while you're on the go out there in case you don't have time to go deep into multiple hours of the program. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, I've tried to, to pull uh, Campbell clips before and it, it is difficult because it's almost like he's working on an idea like chiseling away at a, at a meta idea through a, a longer talk. And the, the two minute snippet sometimes bears a lot of relation to the other work within that speech. When he was talking, was he someone who liked to work closely off of notes or was he an extemporaneous speaker? I have had the privilege many times of going into the Joseph Campbell archive, which is housed at the New York Public Library. And that's where all of his notes are, are kept from the talks, you know, that he gave. And he was someone who had this unique ability to write out what all he was going to say and then seem to rarely refer to it. <laughs> um, I don't know if it was part of his process to write all of it out, and, and then it sort of was in his head. Uh, but when you watch him speak, he's very rarely going back to, to read out of the notes. He'll go and reference something. 
I think Joseph Campbell understood that when you are speaking to an audience, you're speaking to people. Yeah. And it's important to connect with those people through eye contact, through the way that you used your your voice. And Campbell was not only an amazing thinker, he he was a profound communicator. He he really had the ability to capture an audience's curiosity, their fascination, their imagination inside a room. And I, I think he was able to walk that line of of using material that he had developed in order to connect with people, but not being so reliant on that material that he couldn't connect to what people were looking for in that moment. This has been such a great conversation. And I really appreciate the way that you're able to bring my work to life. At any rate, I think a discussion of Joseph Campbell isn't really complete without talking about Esalen. Would you please speak about my connection to Big Sur and to Esalen and how the concept of human potential relates to my work? Mm. What a wonderful question. Well, Joseph Campbell loved Esalen. Joseph Campbell loved Esalen so much that every year, the week of his birthday, he would come and he would give talks at Esalen. It was a very special place for him. I believe that Joseph Campbell didn't just love Esalen because it was a place of aesthetic beauty, but he also sensed there was something spiritual there. Something stirred his soul. There was an energy that he found in that land that was inspiring to him. It also connected him to an earlier season of his life. Joseph Campbell had some very unique and incredible experiences in the Northern California area with John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts and the people that he encountered during that season of his life had a profound effect on him. And being back in that Northern California area of Big Sur, I think also connected him to the entirety of his journey. It connected him to those earlier days when he was first discovering some of these ideas about myth. It was He was a very young man when he spent time with Ed Ricketts and John Steinbeck uh, uh, in that Big Sur area. And for him to be back there as a much older man in that final winter season of life, I think for him, it brought things full circle a bit. He was able to see the entirety of the heroic journey that he had been on. Mm -hmm. The human potential movement is one that aligned so closely with so many of the ideas that Joseph Campbell talked about and so many of the ideas that he found to be compelling. And while he might not necessarily be referencing Abraham Maslow, or he he might not necessarily be referencing Mike Murphy or, or any of these other names that we could bring into the conversation, you still see the work that these people are doing and the, the ideas that they're bringing forth in culture having a place in his own work. They're interacting hmm. with his own work. And honestly, you know, when you hear Campbell in that last year of his life talking about following your bliss, every time I, I, I hear Campbell make that statement, I envision standing at Esalen and looking out over the ocean. 
there's something for me that when I, I put imagery to following my bliss, I see Esalen. I, I see Esalen not just as a physical place where one can follow their bliss, but as a portal into the type of consciousness that one walks into as they begin to follow their bliss. John Booker, such a great way to end this. Thank you for explicating Campbell's work. Sam, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to to come near the fire here of this community and to share stories and to share ideas as people have done so many times before I and as so many people will do after I walk away from this fire. As I've been with you uh, near this fire today, I've felt its warmth and I'm excited about what just might be possible in the future for each one of us as individuals and as a collective. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.